Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, renewed calls for action on long-term care homes on a day when the COVID-19 numbers continue to spike and on a day when tens of thousands of small businesses are still waiting on promised help from the federal government. And we'll have our panel of party commentators on the COVID-19 response and the upcoming U.S. presidential election. But we'll begin tonight with the COVID-19 response from political and health officials. New modelling now from Ontario, suggesting daily case counts in that province will run between 800 and 1,200 a day for the next few weeks. But health officials say the spread so far in the second wave is slowing. Manitoba recorded a record number of cases today, and Quebec was back over 1,000 cases again today. And there are once again more than 100 outbreaks at long-term care homes in Canada, On Parliament Hill, the Deputy Prime Minister faced new demands to end for-profit long-term care homes. There have been particular concerns about how our elders have fared in for-profit long-term care facilities. We cannot turn a blind eye to this, and I very much agree that all options need to be on the table when we think about how we run, operate, and regulate our long-term care facilities in the future. The life of our elders must be a priority. Our country as a whole has not done well enough, and we need to do better going forward. Well, those questions to the Deputy Prime Minister today came from the leader of the NDP, and you can see him now. Jagmeet Singh is with me. Good to see you again, uh, Mr. Singh. Good to see you, sir. Look, what is it you want from the Prime Minister specifically when it comes to for-profit long-term care homes in this country? Well, one, I want the Prime Minister to take a position. Having seen all the evidence that the worst conditions have been found in for-profit long-term care homes and that the second worst in terms of the conditions for for people living in a long-term care home have been found at Rivera, which is effectively owned by the federal government, that we want, one, the Prime Minister to to pronounce, to make it clear that for-profit should have no place when it comes to the care of seniors. And secondly, do something about what's going on at Rivera. It is something within the federal government's power. The for-profit model is clearly resulting in seniors getting sick, uh, people that live in the long-term care uh, centers being sick and dying, and being in horrible, deplorable conditions. Something has to be done, and I'm calling on the federal government to do uh, something within its power, which is specifically around Rivera. Start there, make it clear that that for-profit has no place in the care of people in long-term care. And then let's move from there and work on national standards and work on on taking care of seniors across the country. You talked about the Rivera chain. Um, Explain how you, so it's it's owned by an arm's length investment corporation that also uh, deals with the uh, Canadian forces, the public service, the RCMP. Uh, What is it you think, what kind of control do you think the federal government can exercise over that arm's length organization to say, look, Take a for-profit model and turn it into a non-profit model. And this is in hundreds of, of care homes. So how does that work? Uh, the, the deputy prime minister said in the response today that everything is on the table. Well, if everything's on the table using the power of government, knowing that the government appoints the board 
for the uh, public service pension fund. They appoint the board. So they have absolutely they have power over this uh, Rivera. They have the power. If all tools are on the table, use them. We know that for profit has resulted in more people getting sick and more people dying. Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister herself said all tools are on the table. We're calling on the government to use all those tools. Use everything possible, what they're referring to, use the powers they have, and do something to protect seniors. Okay, so, I mean, it, it's, got to, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, once you start down this road, if that's where you want them to go, then uh, this, is a, uh, this is a for-profit operation. So presumably if, it, if you want the federal government to make it a not-for-profit organization, revenues are lost there somewhere, uh, would the government make those up for those investors? Uh, absolutely. They should so solve this problem. And they moved quickly to buy a, a private pipeline. Um, they just snapped their fingers and bought one up right away. That's just to buy a pipeline. We're talking about seniors that are dying. We're talking about seniors that are getting sick. I, I would hope that the federal government can use their powers to move quickly to do something to help these seniors. When we know, we've heard the examples. Rivera mm. right now is the site of uh, some of the worst outbreaks in Winnipeg, in Ottawa. They are at uh, facilities owned by Rivera. And I've spoken with the families. And when you speak to people, you know, that are going through such horrible conditions, like I spoke with, uh, we spoke with the family of Charles. Charles is an is a educator who is now in this personal care home who has to collect the cockroaches in his unit to prove that there's an infestation. He's uh, sitting in his own waste because there is no one there to take care of him. And he taught kids how to have dignity in themselves. And he says, I don't feel dignity in myself right now. I mean, these are the conditions going on at effectively a federal-owned uh, for-profit care home. Right. I mean, this be, is just so wrong. So to be clear, I mean, it's uh, it's the center of a, a, it's an outbreak, as you point out, in the city of Winnipeg, uh, 19 deaths and lots more infections uh, at this home. Um, but I guess I'm wondering, uh, as we probe this a little deeper here, is nonprofit the only solution? What, what if you had... Uh, higher standards for the for-profit facilities that still allowed some profit, but uh, raised the level of care. Could, could that work? Well, I believe that we do need to have better standards when it comes to care, and that's why we've called for a national standard around what would be the best quality care, asking provinces and territories to come up with the best standard and then establish that national standard. I think that's absolutely important. Enforcement is important. But uh, I've made a really clear stance on this. I, I've looked at the evidence. Experts have looked at the evidence. Profit in long-term care clearly and conclusively results in worse care for seniors, worse care for people. And they're more likely to get sick. They're more likely to die. Because of that, I have made it very clear where I stand on this. Profit has no place when it comes to the care of people uh, in long-term care. It has so no place. That's my make, position. Make, in, make, make the direct argument for us so that everybody watching understands. So that so the, the case you're making for, and there, there is some evidence, we've seen a Canadian Medical Association journal has done some research that shows that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the case rate is higher in for-profit homes and the, and the death rate is, has been higher in for-profit homes. But make, make the connection for us. Okay, now it's a non-profit home. So what does that practically mean for the people there? Does it mean uh, more public ser uh, personal service workers? Does it mean uh, better food? Does it mean better? Does it mean higher pay, more nurses on staff? What's the connection there? It means all of those things, but, but I can make it really clear. Uh, when we were dealing with profit in a long-term care home, there's really two ways to make profit. Increase the cost 
for someone to be there to an astronomical, astronomical level or cut the quality. If the cost remains the same, then you have to cut the quality. Uh, both of those things are wrong. A senior should not, you know, a person that needs long-term care should not be prohibited because of cost. And if a company wants to make profit, what we see, and the results are very clear, they cut the quality. And that means lower levels of staffing, that means less care given to each senior, lower quality food, uh, less testing, and, and the results are clear. When that happens, seniors get sick and seniors die, or people living in long-term care homes get sick and they die. And so that's why it's absolutely, you've laid out everything. When we have public facilities, there is better care, there is more care, there is more attention paid, there's more of the resources used towards paying for the care that they need rather than trying to pay back shareholders. And so we've looked at many examples where during the worst of the outbreak, shareholders were being enriched more than the companies were spending on actually caring for people during COVID-19. And that's okay. the problem, that when you have a profit model, it means the attention is on making profit for the shareholders, not on caring for the people living in the long-term care homes. Okay, uh, we, we do know there, there's, there would be some work to do on this because the, some of the provinces are resistant to the federal government interfering in, in long-term care issues as provincial jurisdiction uh, and setting standards nationally. Some of them have pushed back against that. So, okay, while, while I've got you here, uh, let me ask you about one other topic before I let you go. The House of Commons, they debated uh, a motion from the Bloc Québécois to uh, call on the federal government to apologize for the imposition of the War Measures Act during the FLQ October crisis of 50 years ago. Uh, you've said the NDP will support that. Liberals and Conservatives won't. Uh, why is the NDP on side with this? Well, at the time when the War Measures Act was put in place during the October crisis, the only federal leader that stood a, took a stand to say it was the wrong thing to do was Tommy Douglas. New Democrats took a stand on this. Uh, when it first happened, it was an unpopular thing to do. There was horrible violence going on perpetrated by the FLQ. A lot of people were in fear, but the War Measures Act resulted in a very heavy-handed approach. Innocent people were arrested, lots of human rights violations. So apologizing for the human rights violations is something that you know, we support. It's important to acknowledge the harms done to people, the injustice that happened. At the same time, we continue to condemn the violence and, and the harm suffered by people by the, the attacks. Right, and so, so some, some people oppose the motion, say, look, uh, the motion is ignoring that side of the story. The, the death of Pierre Laporte, the deputy uh, premier in Quebec, the labor minister at the time, the kidnapping of James Cross, a British diplomat, all those hundreds of bombings that took place in Quebec. Uh, the motion makes no mention of that, uh, but you still believe it's worth supporting simply for what it says about the imposition of the act. Well, the, the human rights violations are pretty obvious. The, it's very clear that, that a lot of innocent people were uh, unduly and unjustly arrested and, and mistreated. And, and so apologizing for that makes sense. If there's any time that that, that a government uh, falls through on, on a measure or engages in an activity that violates people's human rights, acknowledging that and apologizing for that, apologizing for that is the right thing to do. All right. It does not take away from the condemnation of the violence that happened in the October crisis doesn't take away from uh, vehemently opposing the the harm that was suffered by people uh, through the violent acts. That's something that can still remain. You can do both. All right, Jagmeet Singh, uh, thanks for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the precarious time for many small businesses in Canada is only getting more precarious for many of them. Well, a lot of businesses wait for new promised support programs from the federal government. Many others, they may not last long enough to get the help when it does come. 
Dan Kelly is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins me now. Mr. Kelly, good to speak with you again. Happy to be with you. Look, you have some new survey numbers out from your members across the country, and uh, these survey numbers in this period in time we're living through never seem to be very good news, and they're, they're not great news again. So uh, what are you hearing from your members now as we get through, a, start of work through a second wave of the pandemic here? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the sad reality is that it's getting worse, not better in terms of uh, businesses' ability to make it across the COVID finish line. Uh, you know, over the summer months, some businesses were actually starting to see some glimmers of hope. They were reopening, people were starting to come back. There were even a few office workers heading back to work. Uh, but in a lot of Canada's major set centres, that has come to a screeching halt uh, as fears of a second wave and some new restrictions are causing businesses to, to contract again. Our data shows that half of small businesses have seen a further drop in sales over the last several weeks related to the fears of a second wave or, or new restrictions. And over a third of businesses are losing money every single day that they're open. So it's uh, unfortunately moving in the wrong direction. Right. And I, and I, I think so, so that... Um, and I think many of our audience, does, many people in our audience will, but I mean, it's, it's worth noting out that, you know, um, businesses in places such as Toronto and Winnipeg, where the restrictions have increased along with the spike in case numbers, and we have predictions now today from Ontario in the modeling that the daily case numbers will run between 800 and 1,200 a day for the coming weeks into November. Uh, that could raise the prospect perhaps of deeper or, or a longer lockdown. Uh, when you hear that, what does it make you think? Well, look, Quebec's already announced that it's going to be extending its uh, its business lockdowns that they've made, the partial lockdowns that they've made. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that, that other provinces do the same. Uh, look, we, we get the health consequences, but business owners are just getting gutted by this stuff. And, and, and you know, they're starting to ask some pretty serious questions. I didn't hear these questions during the first round of lockdowns. Well, what, what, are they, what are they asking? On, what are they asking? Well, they're asking to see the evidence, the evidence that it's coming from, say, restaurants uh, and, and whether these actions that governments are taking are absolutely necessary or if they are getting lumped in uh, with, uh, with cases ticking up from house parties and, and schools going back. Hmm. And that's that we're hearing a lot more of that. So, you know, right now in Toronto and Winnipeg, 70 percent of businesses have said that they, their sales have slid again over the last number of weeks. And over half are losing money every day that they're open. The government support programs are, are are still, in many cases, in the legislative stage. We haven't even seen the introduction of legislation, let alone implementation of the programs. And I think we can do an awful lot better uh, than what we're doing right now in terms of ensuring if we are going to have to close down a single additional business, that there is complete support available to that entrepreneur to help them get across this, given how long the pandemic has continued. I know that you're constantly uh, working the phones, working emails, talking to members, talking to government. Uh, what can you tell us about where, I mean, I think it was a few weeks ago now, the government introduced its new, uh, you know, relief, rent relief program for, for small businesses. Uh, where Where's that at? No, yeah, it's a good question. Look, uh, I, I was really encouraged that uh, that there were major reforms made to the rent subsidy, which was a complete disaster, uh, more enhancements made to the wage subsidy, which has worked reasonably well, and even an expansion of the SIBA loan program. Uh, 
Uh, and though all those three things are good news, uh, Christia Freeland, the deputy prime minister, has been listening carefully. We've been in communications uh, almost every week. Um, but, you know, she was only appointed as finance minister a few short weeks ago. And, and, and unfortunately, we're still uh, dealing with some of the, 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 the lack of concern, the lack of movement of the programs from the past. But we've got to get this stuff through Parliament fast because it is now, I mean, we're at the end of October. There's going to be, there's another rent bill due this week uh, for most independent businesses across Canada. And the rent support program is supposed to be retroactive to October. I'm not super optimistic that business owners are going to see any money coming from the new program until December. And what's that going to mean for many of them? I mean, the, the ones that talk to you, how, how close are they to that line? It is getting closer by the day. And, and you know, the other group that I'm hearing from an awful lot these days are business owners that, that have slipped through the cracks of every single one of the programs, especially brand new businesses that started in 2020, say uh, in February or March. Uh, you know, I just talked to a business owner that put a $400,000 investment in a restaurant. He was able to open it, his dining room for a few weeks over the summer, and now essentially has been shut down again. Uh, and he is essentially, you know, he, he's saying that he has no future now and all that investment is going to go down the drain. He hasn't qualified for rent subsidy, the wage subsidy, nor has he qualified for even the CBA loan. This is dangerous stuff. The government's got to do move faster to get these programs in, in action I mean, if we're going to help, if we're going to have a chance of saving some of these businesses, especially those facing a further round of lockdowns. Right. And then you, you talked about some businesses starting to ask questions about whether they, they really need to be in this kind of lockdown. They want to see the evidence for that. We saw under penalty of uh, a threat of, of, of fines and legal action in Quebec that, you know, gym owners there just uh, earlier this week were all set to defy the, the rules and open anyway. They, they since backed down. But are you concerned that in, unless the help flows to these businesses much more quickly and that uh, they get a sense that, that, that uh, someone's looking out for them, that we're going to see some of that in other parts of the country too, that businesses, I, I mean, what we started to call is sort of a COVID mutiny. You know, look, uh, Minister Freeland spoke about that in her remarks just yesterday about the fact that, you know, if if we don't have good and proper business supports in place, these are the kinds of things that will happen. Uh, I think she's right. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that we're delivering on these if we want to have businesses with the patience and the ability to have jobs available for Canadians at the end of the COVID finish line. But we're still a long way around that. There are tons of businesses that have not seen any money delivered from any of the major government support programs. That needs to change. Uh, but we need to make sure governments, too, are locking down only those that are absolutely necessary and not a day longer than is necessary uh, through this process. And I, I'm not sure that the communications has been uh, efforts have been particularly strong for this round. There was a lot of patience mm. uh, and understanding on the part of the business community in March and April. Um, that's wearing pretty darn thin among my members right now. All right, Dan Kelly, uh, uh, good to get this update on what's happening in the small business community and, uh, across the country with, uh, I think it's more than 100,000 members you represent. Thanks for your time tonight and we'll stay in touch. Anytime. Well, the Prime Minister continues to tread softly when it comes to commenting about next week's U.S. presidential election. Justin Trudeau held a virtual summit with heads of the European Union today, and all of them backed the need for multilateralism and each expressed faith in the decision soon to be made by the American people. We will, of course, be watching 
uh, election day unfold uh, in the United States with uh, confidence in American democracy and their democratic traditions that have managed this event uh, every four years for a very, very long time successfully. There have been situations uh, in 2000, for example, where it was a matter of weeks before arriving at a final outcome. Uh, and as we did then, we will um, you know, follow uh, along carefully without uh, interfering, interfering or intervening uh, in uh, well-established uh, processes uh, internal to the United States' democracy. Well, if it's Thursday, and yes, it is, it's time for our panel of commentators. This week, I'm joined by Omar Khan. He's a liberal commentator, Tim Powers, a conservative commentator, and Robin McLaughlin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Good to be here. Good. Listen, the Prime Minister, we just had a virtual summit with European Union leaders today, and they all sort of tiptoed around the possible outcome of the U.S. election next week, not wanting to express support for one side or the other. I think we're used to hearing that. Uh, we all know what life's like with Donald Trump. We've seen it for the past four years. But should Canadians simply assume that relations with a Biden White House, if that's what happens, will automatically be, be better for Canada? Omar, let me start with you. Look, I think Canadians uh, do well when the United States is engaged uh, in the world and engaged in the world in a positive way, both from an economic perspective, but also from a security uh, and, and, and strategic perspective. And what we've seen under the current U.S. administration is really the, the U.S. Uh, pull back from its traditional alliances, uh, you know, continuously threatened to withdraw from NATO, attack NATO, threatened to pull troops out of South Korea, um, attack you know, cancel, the WTO, no, attack, attack the cancel WHO. military exercises, attack the WTO, all of that. You know, Canada, we're, we're, a, we're a soft power, we're a middle power, and we need to be aligned with the United States. But we need them to be aligned with us uh, and, and, and all of our allies as we, as, we, as we look to counter what is a rising China. Oh. And the best way to counter a rising China is to get the United States uh, into TPP, have the United States be active in international forums, be building those international coalitions. That's what we need the Americans to do. It hasn't happened under the current administration. Uh, very few people will say this publicly within the government, but I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, most folks within the government are quietly, uh, quietly but aggressively hoping for a Biden victory on Tuesday. Tim, is that the right thing for Canada to wish for, a Biden victory? <laughs> I think anybody but Donald Trump is, is is going to be better for Canada. I mean, look, it's no won't be a walk in the park for some people in Western Canada. Those in the oil and gas industry who are worried about what uh, Mr. Biden may do with Keystone XL if he becomes uh, the prime minister. But I just think for global relations purposes, and this benefits Canada, the world will be a little bit more predictable predictable, which is probably what we need now, uh, Peter, in this day and age, if Biden comes to four. I mean, it just it seems like it was so long ago, I guess it is 20 years ago when the world was very concerned about George uh, Bush Jr. becoming the president. I'd take George Bush Jr. any day over Donald Trump. So getting Joe Biden in that office, I think, will bring some calm to the world. Maybe not America, but calm to the world. Uh, Robin, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with, uh, you know, Tim and Omar, uh, you know, about the impact globally for multilateral organizations and for world peace, to be frank. Um, but I think the other big problem for Canada is the border. Uh, the biggest impact of this is going to be, hopefully, if Biden is victorious, that we can have some semblance of a North American approach to dealing with this public health crisis right now. And we share, you know, the biggest, longest uh, undefended border in the world. 
and that matters for trade. And under Trump, we've been under irrational attacks on our industries, on our integrated markets like auto. Uh, and I think, mo of course, most recently, the biggest problem has been uh, that we have south of us uh, a raging COVID uh, epidemic that is, uh, is much worse than anything that's happening uh, here at home. And it makes it really hard for us to have a concerted approach in Canada uh, when we know the greatest threat is the borders and, and those south of us and what's happening there. So uh, I think that, you know, I'm not, I've never been a huge fan of Joe Biden and a lot of his policies, but, um, you know, I'll just speak to one thing in particular, that the, the battle for progress and equality does not stop at international borders. Uh, and the, the, the fight that uh, Donald Trump has raged against women, against people of color, against minorities, uh, has been one of the, the you know, greatest setbacks, I think, for the democratic world. Uh, and there's hope that with a Biden presidency that, yes, we've lost a lot of ground in the Supreme Court in the U.S., uh, that we can again hopefully take up a multilateral approach to okay. progress and advancing equality. Omar, let's talk, we, we, we've, we're talking about the pandemic here and in, uh, in, uh, in part and the response to it. Uh, let's talk about Christa Freeland, pandemic spending. Uh, we heard from her yesterday, a clear pledge to keep spending, but uh, not a whole lot about the longer term plan yet for easing spending or, or even where any new spending will or should be spent. And to what end, uh, you know, that uh, to what end that spending would be used. Uh, it's all just about getting through another phase of the pandemic and a phase that may be worse. Uh, should we have a better idea of how the government's plan for the economy and the recovery going forward uh, is, is what it's going to be beyond just more money for the crisis? Yeah, I think it'll come in the, in the, in the fall economic update. Look, you know, the, there's really two phases to what the government has to do here. One is addressing the immediate impact of the pandemic, which is evolving on a daily basis, right? You know, we see cases now starting to spike uh, you know, in places like Quebec, Ontario, also in Alberta and Western Canada. Uh, so we need to be able to put the resources on the table right now to be able to stabilize the situation uh, in the provinces that are seeing rising case counts. But beyond that, you know, we really need to look at some of the uh, systemic dis uh, some of the systemic inequities within our economic model that have been exacerbated by COVID. Um, you know, how are we going to what 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 role does the federal government have to invest in childcare, for example? Uh, so that families actually have a realistic option to be able to get back to work, to be able to contribute to the economy, to be able to pay taxes. What, what's our plan to to affect uh, or what's our plan to help, uh, you know, workers in, in the service and retail sectors, uh, which are disproportionately BIPOC and women? Right. What's our federal government's plan to help those sectors be able to uh, to, to survive? Uh, but also adapt and, and thrive and grow again once okay. the pandemic. And then lastly, the targeted industries, right? We saw the Business Council. Of yeah, Canada exactly. Issue. Saying they're we've actually got, saying we, major, we need to know where the government wants to spend major this money. Industries, major industries like, like, like the airline industry, for example, and others out there that are taking huge, huge financial hits. A lot of these industries employ thousands of Canadians across, across the, from, from coast to coast. What's the federal government's plan to, to support uh, and help these these industries okay. as we move forward. I think that's what Tim, we'll be looking at here. Tim, let me move to you. Are, are, are you, are, are you, what's your level of confidence in what you're hearing from Christopher Freeland? Well, let's talk about the politics of it because this is a political show. Look, the, the, the government is not going to want to tell you too much about austerity right now for political purposes in part. And those purposes are we're likely going to have an election sooner rather than later. Uh, they don't want to go to the electorate talking about austerity. They want to go to the electorate telling them what they've done for them, reminding them they've given them checks and they've given them benefits, not to suggest that uh, this emergency spending wasn't necessary. So I don't think we're going to hear too much about uh, 
the fiscal anchor until we're well into an election or even past an election, if that's the case. The policy side of it, I do agree with Omar. They're struggling with, um, you know, the emergency spending continuing. We all thought we might be into recovery spending now. That isn't happening. Uh, it's disconcerting, though, and this is where I'll end, to to not at least have a little bit more honesty about when the taps are going to come off. At least the Bank of Canada can project growth spurts and, and spending requirements through until 2022, 2023. It would be nice if the government could do something similar. Robin, we heard from, uh, in that vein, we heard uh, the finance minister, Christian Freeland, say yesterday, look, the, uh, the money's going to flow, but it's not infinite. Uh, do we need to hear more? Yeah, so, you know, I'd like to bridge Omar and, and Tim's comments because I, I think a lot of what Omar touched on is really important in terms of implementing the throne speech ideas about how protecting the most vulnerable bring other, and also bringing in structural reforms to our social safety net around things like childcare. Finally, we have business uh, and childcare advocates agreeing that this is a core function for our economy as well as for, uh, you know, for, for women who predominantly bear that uh, responsibility. Um, but there's also pharmacare. And these are things that for... for Minister Freeland, what she has to reconcile is, yes, they're spending uh, all, everything that's needed to quote the, the government to ensure that they can protect Canadians and businesses um, as they face lockdowns and other um, financial burdens. Uh, but if we are going to take on those structural fiscal changes, which come from pharmacare and childcare, how much room do we have to do that? Because it's one thing to spend in the immediate term because that's not a structural change to our fiscal balance sheet. That's just uh, temporary, acute kind of spending on the crisis. But what's going to be left from a structural standpoint? And I think the minister does have to provide some kind of fiscal assurance that the promises the Liberals have made on pharmacare and childcare uh, are going to be fiscally um, doable. Because right now, that's, uh, that's, that's not easy to determine uh, when all we're seeing is the taps on for the, the immediate crisis. All right. Uh, gentlemen, it's been great to talk to all of you uh, this evening. Appreciate your time uh, joining us, and we'll talk again soon. Take care, all of you. Thanks. Forward to it. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.